Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, Tim is up with some insights on the first reading for August 29th, Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2, 6 through 9. Although I was thinking that this reading for the week was from the Song of Songs. (laughs) Yeah, well... Remember, there are two tracks of Old Testament readings in the Revised Common Lectionary, and the Uh the track that's going through the wisdom literature these days has a selection from Song of Songs this week. But I'll just be honest, figuring out how to preach the erotic poetry of Song of Songs still feels a little bit beyond my grasp, at least without doing a ton of research first. So I kind of punted this week to the other reading, uh, which is in Deuteronomy, more familiar territory for me. So basically you're saying you're a coward, Tim? (laughs) When it comes to this, yes. (laughs) Fair. Okay, so the Deuteronomy reading is from the track that pairs the Old Testament readings with the New Testament text, right? Yes, yes. The New Testament readings this week, which are James 4 and Mark 7, both warn against hypocrisy in relationship to God's law. James in particular challenges the church to be doers and not just hearers of God's word. And that's actually quite well aligned with the message of Deuteronomy 4. Yeah, really the whole of the whole of the book in some ways too. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so so lead us into Deuteronomy 4 then. What have we jumped over in chapters 1 to 3 to get here? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the book of Deuteronomy is set up as a speech that's given by Moses at the very end of those 40 years of wilderness wandering, shortly before the people crossed through the Jordan into the land that God had promised them. Now, Moses will die before that crossing. So the book is kind of set up like his farewell speech. And the bulk of it is a reiteration of God's instructions for how Israel is supposed to organize itself as a people under God's own rule. Lots of this duplicates the legal material from Exodus and Numbers, which is why the book eventually became known as Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. Greek term meaning second law. Nice, yeah. Well, in any case, the book of Deuteronomy takes a while to get wrapped up. (laughs) There's a number of stacked up introductions before you get to the legal material itself, which sort of starts in chapter five, but then stalls out with more intro stuff and really doesn't pick up for real until all the way back in chapter 12. Hmm. So chapters one through three summarize that 40-year history of wanderings through the wilderness and tells about how they ended up at this moment ready to enter the land. So, so it's a little bit like previously on the Israelites in the wilderness. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and the end of chapter three makes it clear that Moses isn't going to be the one who leads them any farther than this. So this really is his big swan song. And then our chapter four begins with a big, so now, which is v'ata in Hebrew. And Here's a little bit of a tangent here on the Hebrew stuff. Okay. (laughs) I know you'll like this. Uh, Ve'ata, which simply means and now, is a formal phrase that comes from the world of ancient letter writing. After all of the greetings and the preliminary stuff, you know, dear so-and-so, I hope you're well, hope your family's doing well. It's been a hot (laughs) summer. We're hanging in there here, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Where in our customs of letter writing, we do a big double return to signal that we're starting the body of the letter now. Mm. Ancient scribes made that big transition with the phrase ve'ata. And often with the phrase ve'ata shema. Now listen to the words of so-and-so. And and then the messenger would go on to read the body of the letter. 
Anyway, our big ve'ata in chapter four, verse one here signals that everything up to this point was preliminary. And now we're getting down to the business at hand. And it even has that call to listen. Ve'ata Yisrael, Shema. Listen to the statutes and ordinances that I'm teaching you to do. Okay, so we're in Deuteronomy 4, but that Ve'ata Yisrael, Shema sounds like, like a, a prologue almost to the Shema that comes in 6.4, right? Yes, that's so true. The Shema, you know, the hero Israel, Adonai, our God is one, isn't the only sort of listen up y'all passage in Deuteronomy. Here's another one back in 4.1. And while the one that's in chapter six, the famous one is the call to pay attention to the uniqueness of God. The Shema here is a call to attend to the uniqueness of the law itself, mm. a call to recognize what a gift it is. Boy, that's really powerful because we, in Christian circles, we really like that Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, all of that. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the law, we don't talk about it that way. <laughs> but, right. but here, you know, we talk about it as like a bad thing, but here in Deuteronomy, they're paralleling those two in some ways that as, as important as God and special as God is, so the law is important and special too. Yes, it's set up as a gracious gift from God. Yeah. And especially in this passage in verses six through eight, it just it extols the law as Israel's special treasure, mm -hmm. one that makes other peoples jealous. Hmm. It, it goes like this, these statutes and ordinances, you should observe them diligently for this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this is a great nation. <laughs> you know, this, is a, this great nation is wise and discerning people. What other great nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call to him? And what other great nation has statutes and ordinances as just as this entire law that I'm setting before you today? <laughs> so, so Moses is appealing to their collective ego as an incentive for keeping them faithful to God. Like, <laughs> look, everybody else is going to say, you're so wise, you're so cool. <laughs> right. Yes, yes. Although this invitation to follow God's law takes a kind of carrot and stick approach. Okay, so I'm assuming this is the carrot. So what's the mm -hmm. stick? The, the lectionary skips over it. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but verses three to four give the warning. Don't mess around with this law. Because you saw what I did, what God did at Baal Peor. I wiped out everyone who strayed. So if you want to live, you'll be careful to keep these laws. Okay, so that particular stick probably needs a little bit of contextualizing. So remind <laughs> us, who and what is Baal Peor? Yeah, yeah. So that's a story from Numbers 25, where a bunch of Israelites intermarried with Moabites and Midianites and began to worship their god, the Baal of Peor. Ah. In response... God unleashed a plague that killed something like 24,000 Israelites, and a bunch of them were brutally executed by Moses' own command. In fact, the quote-unquote hero of the day was Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, who took a spear and skewered an Israelite man and a Midianite woman in their tent right through their bellies. Hmm. And supposedly, this satisfied God's wrath and halted the plague. Oh, lovely. 
Interesting. Okay, so if I'm thinking of the law or the Torah as this this beautiful gift and also this thing that can provoke danger, I'm I'm kind of going in my mind to places like Lord of the Rings and uh, the the power of something that has the ability to do great good and great uh, great uh, danger at the same time. Um, because that seems like a really heavy stick to go along with this carrot. Yeah, it is. It is, and. You know, to be honest, that part of it sits quite uneasily with me. Mm. I think I'm for me, I find it hard to tell preachers to celebrate how awesome God's instruction is when there's also this like really violent threat hanging mm. right there also. And really, so one option would be to just ignore the stick and just mm. offer the carrot sort of a la carte. <laughs> Which is what the RCL does. Yes, exactly. By <laughs> skipping verses three and four. But I feel like and I, I'm sure you would agree too, Rach, that we need to face the difficult parts of our scripture just as much as the pleasant parts, mm-hmm. especially when they're so interwoven like they are here in Deuteronomy 4. Yeah, yeah. You you can't take the one without the other. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so what then do you make of this, this carrot and stick or how might you preach it? Mm. Well, I know that many pastors and interpreters will want to find ways to kind of justify this violence in the context of God's holiness, maybe, or or the special calling of Israel to be a people set apart from the nations. Mm -hmm. But my own advice would be simply to recognize and admit the humanity in a text like this. Mm -hmm. While I don't think I can agree with the violence that's threatened here, I can understand the impulse One that comes from anxiety over the potential loss of a sense of communal identity. I mean, look look again at verse 1. Moses is teaching them these instructions so that you may live and enter and possess the land. There's kind of an anxiety here about losing the land that's built into the text. But also there's an emphasis here on identity. God is called in this verse, Adonai Elohei Avotechem. Adonai, the God of your ancestors. This is about communal identity and communal continuity, which is mirrored in the last verse of the lectionary section, verse 9. But take care and watch yourselves closely, so as neither to forget the things that your eyes have seen, nor let them slip from your mind all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. Now, I think it's significant that the Bible remembers God's law being given to Israel outside of the land Mm. and before a time of the Israelite monarchy. This is one of the things that became crucial for Jews during the Babylonian exile. Even without a monarchy, even outside of the land, they could preserve their sense of being a people, a, a kind of national identity through this gift of the law taught generation by generation, even in diaspora. Mm. But if they forget the law, then they lose that identity. Mm. I think this is related to the anxiety that we were talking about in that Numbers 25 story about the Baal of Peor. It wasn't just idolatry that was the problem there. It was exogamy, intermarrying with the peoples around them. The danger that Moses and the leaders perceived was that their distinctive ethnic and cultural identity would be lost, diluted, Mm -hmm. as would their unique relationship to their God. So the stakes were really high for them, especially especially in that tumultuous period in the 6th century BCE during their exile. Mm -hmm. 
when many of the texts that we know as the Old Testament came to the forefront of this people's cultural life. That's really interesting, Tim, because what you almost have are, you know, whenever these texts were written, you almost have a a mirroring of scenarios. You know, in in Deuteronomy Mm -hmm. 4, they're about to enter an unknown situation to be surrounded by lots of people who will threaten their identity. In the Babylonian exile, they're in an unknown situation. They're surrounded by a lot of people who are threatening their collective identity. And in both of those cases, you find this this like this really high anxiety is that kind of what you're saying yeah yeah and i this is i think this is a really important sort of big picture thing about the the texts of the bible and, and how they function as identity forming texts i get a lot of this from our dear professor jacob wright <laughs> who's, who's done a lot of work on this sort of uh, bible as communal identity forming document yeah. type of thing the the things that imputed identity to peoples in the ancient world were land and centralized government Mm. and for for peoples that had that stripped away from them usually through the conquest of empires they often lost that sense of communal identity but part of what helped the jewish people persevere as a people with a sense a strong sense of group identity was that they had something other than those things to keep them united and it was it was this torah this this uh sense of a relationship with their God that transcended land and king mm. and any of that stuff. Yeah. And so the, the, the stakes for holding um, so strongly to this particular thing were really high for them. Yeah, and really was a, a gift. You know, it, Moses presents mm-hmm. this as a gift that other nations would be jealous of. And it, I, I really like that. It, it sounds like you're, you're walking a thin line really well about not affirming the anxiety that's in the text, but putting this text in its context of the the trauma of the moment that helps us understand how those anxieties might have arisen and been expressed. That's awesome. But you still haven't said how you're going to preach this. <laughs> right, right. Well, um, so here's where I've landed on this, at least for now. Ask, ask me tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, right. I framed the exegesis of this text as a kind of carrot and stick approach to God's law. But for a sermon, I think I'd adjust that image. Mm. Instead of a carrot and stick, I think we could listen to this text as a kind of conversation or a dialogue or even like, a, like an internal debate. Mm. I think the key verse is verse 7. What other great nation has God so near to them as Adonai, our God, whenever we call? Mm. I think this verse could be heard as a response and a challenge to the fears and anxieties that are also in the text. (laughs) Uh, A response that's relevant to our own context as well. We're surrounded by all sorts of cultural anxiety and fear. The the culture wars have dominated American social life, at least, over the past several decades and continue to ramp up. And this is true in other parts of the world as well. And often those cultural anxieties spill over into violence, whether threatened or actualized violence. I mean, fear is what props up such things as white supremacy and homophobia and xenophobia in the church as much or even more as anywhere else. But verse 7 challenges us. What basis is there for anxiety and fear? God is near to us. God is the one who establishes our identity, who tends it and preserves it. God makes us who we are. 
And that God isn't far off somewhere, but stays close to us, close enough to hear us when we call. God isn't anxious like we are. God isn't fearful like we are. So we don't need to be anxious because God is with us. I think a sermon on this passage could identify with the human anxieties of the text, but also challenge them with the text mm-hmm. and invite congregations to renew their trust and sense of identity in God for Christians in Christ and not in any fight to preserve our own cultural norms. Because let's be honest, you can't love your neighbor when you're battling them in a culture war. Mm. And, and, and just to tag on a little bit of New Testament here, I think this is where the James 4 reading could be brought in to support this line of reasoning. When you're fighting an anxious culture war, it's like you've walked away from the mirror and forgotten what you look like, mm. forgotten who you really are and what anchors your identity. Wow. That's really beautiful. Two things that I love. One is that the text is in dialogue with itself. I think mm-hmm. we, we as Christians, we can feel so nervous sometimes when the Bible does what we call contradicting itself. But really this idea of the Bible speaking with itself and talking back to itself is really a beautiful thing to be a part of. Um, so I love that piece of it too. And just this last thing you said about walking away from the mirror and forgetting what you look like. I, I, I mean, it's. I think there's a lot of hay that a preacher could make with that, of, of walking away from a brother or sister and forgetting even what they look like, namely that mm. they are our family. They, they look like us because they are our family. Um, and when we stay in this gift of the Torah and the closeness of God, we stay anchored to that identity as a, a loving family of God. So... I think there's a lot that that could be done with that. At least to start. At least to start. (laughs) Well, preachers, if you didn't find anything to preach about here, it is not Tim's fault because there's (laughs) a lot of great stuff in this. So we hope you do. We hope you take up this call to preach on the beautiful gift of God's Torah, law, instruction. And if you do, you know what? Send us a note. Let us know how it went. We can be found on the Facebook or on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. And we'd love to hear more from you there as well. If you've not yet subscribed, you can find us wherever podcasts can be found to subscribe to. We give a big thanks to Trinity Lutheran Seminary for a grant that helps us do this work as they prepare their leaders for mission in Christ's world. And we give a big thanks to you for listening and for being in dialogue with us. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week.